Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who listen regularly will already know, we release three different types of podcasts. There's our 10 minute lesson series, our seminar series and our interview series. This week is slightly different. As this week marks International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, we present a crossover episode with the Labour Forward podcast. CJ from Labour Forward tells us why he was so drawn to tell the story of American civil rights activist Spike Moss, who's the current focus of his podcast. And from there, we discuss the shifting face of racism and some lessons we can learn for a multicultural Ireland. We hope you enjoy. I might begin the conversation then, CJ, by just asking you about your podcast, about Spike. What, what drew you to Spike? How did you find him? Why was he so interesting? Yeah, so thank you for having me first. Uh, great to talk to you and connect. I think what drew me to Spike was, was his pain, honestly. Uh, so the way I met him, it was June of 2020. So it was a couple of weeks after George Floyd was murdered. And I found myself in Minneapolis as a part of this group of leaders that were convened from across the country and I'm, I'm sitting at this table with him before things start. So this is before I knew who he was or his story or what his role was going to be in the group. And he just started talking. And he started talking about all the things that he had been through and experienced. But there, there was one story that really hit me. And I think it's in episode one of the podcast where he talks about his love for the game of baseball and how his little league team, the all black team, they were really good. And eventually one of the neighboring white teams were like, hey, we should play, play a game together, which was something, you know, that didn't happen really at that time. And he was telling me that they got up something like 11-1 on the white kids and the white kids' parents started to beat them, chase them to the river, you know, beat grown adults beating children over the game of baseball. And he said he never touched a baseball after that. And to he... That happened, I think, when he was about nine or 10. I spoke to him when he was 75, and you could still hear the pain in his voice. So from there, he starts telling about all the work he's done in activism, uh, his first protest, the fighting against fighting cases against police brutality, and the fact that he's, no matter how much evidence he has had, he's never won a case. And then he started telling me about the people he knew his contemporaries, because you, you think about it, he's in his 70s. He knew Fred Hampton. He knew Fannie Lou Hamer. He knew uh, Jim Brown. He knew Jesse Jackson. All of these people who have, you know, done great things in their national American national figures. And I'm like, how is it we haven't heard your name? You've got a day in the city named after you. Why don't we know who you are? And then I have friends who are from Minneapolis. And I started to ask them, like, hey, I just met this guy. Have you ever heard of him? Not a single one. And the only thought I had at the time, which looking back on it was kind of crazy, was, you know, your story, I can't let his story die with him. Because he said something to us along the lines of, I'm the last of my generation. Everyone that I've been fighting with for the last 60 years, they're all gone. It's just me. And my thought was just, your story can't die with you. I need to make a documentary about your life. Now, I like to believe that I am a writer, but I don't think I'm a filmmaker. 
I see those billboards and they're like shot on an iPhone. And I think my phone doesn't do that. Can someone explain this to me? But it, I don't know. It's just sometimes you feel really called to something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you, you just feel a purpose placed on your heart and you got to figure out what to do with it. And through a series of very fortunate events, I got connected with this organization, Entertainment to Affect Change, who their sole focus is creating media and content around important social issues. And they were able to help me bring this project to life, which I am so, so grateful for. But you hear the story of Spike, you hear what he went through, starting with the fact that he was born on a table in his, in his mother's home because the nearest hospital was a segregated hospital and wouldn't admit him. Like, it's like stuff like that. When you think about what people had to go through, you know, my grandmother just turned 81 a couple of weeks ago. And I asked, I was like, were you born in a segregated hospital? She's like, oh no, I was born at home because we couldn't get to a hospital. Like it's, it's stuff like that where we, we think, oh, it's distant history. It's so far past. That's my grandmother. Like the, the his, history is not that far. The key thing there really is story, isn't it, CJ? It's, I think it's by telling stories. That's how we change people's perceptions of, of who we are. And that's so vital. The work that Spike did with children. I mean, there's one, there's one child he mentioned was part of his music program. And I was like, really? Yeah. Young, boy, young, young boy called Prince Nelson. Hmm, I think I've heard of him. So the, the Purple Rain, ever heard of it? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, no Spike, no Prince. Yeah, which, which is crazy. Like, right? This is, yeah. this guy, he's had Prince, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, The Sounds of Blackness. He's had all of these incredible artists come through his music school. Artists who, if we just stick with Prince, yeah. change the landscape of the music industry. Yeah. Without Spike, would we have had Prince? And yet we've never heard Spike's name. It's also that process as well of removing that other aspect. I mean, you and me are other to each other because we have different color skin, we're a different gender. There's almost two decades separating us age-wise. We do both look great for it though, to be fair. But (laughs) one is American, one is European. So we're quite othered. And that's before we even get into our faith, our value backgrounds, our educational backgrounds, our socioeconomic backgrounds. But just by sitting and talking, that kind of othering disappears. Like other isn't a problem. It's when you make other less than, that's where the problem is. That's, I suppose, everything there is to know about racism is that you've turned other into less than. So you've said, by virtue of the colour of your skin, You don't get to cross this street here. You don't get to sit on this bus. You don't get to use this hospital. And it is, it is a nonsense. Like I was just thinking when the last time we spoke, you were talked about CVs and people's names on CVs. And could you imagine if I put my CV in and somebody said, "Hmm, yeah, she's a Pisces. (sighs) Can't, you know, (laughs) they have a bad reputation for being lazy or for always being late not being allowed to be met as an individual that you're you're reduced to a type and that somebody has already decided who you are when you sit and break it down it is nonsense isn't it it's such nonsense i I have two two stories i love to tell around the the cb issue so i i talk to people in their 20s a lot uh giving giving talks or mentoring and things like that and i have to explain to them that I started looking for jobs before you could just Google someone. 
So yes, we were applying for jobs online, but there wasn't, we all didn't have enough information out there where I could look at your name, Google you and learn what I want to know. So I have a name, Claude Alexander Quarterbaum II, that especially here in New York, when you hear it, you think a young Jewish man is going to walk through the door. And then you see me and I am everything but. I am a, hey, I'm not big, but I'm a big enough black guy with dreads, the exact opposite of what you, what you pictured. And I had plenty of interviews that my name got me into, that my face got me out of. One was, a, I, it was my first interview out of college. I'm, I'm super nervous. It's the height of the recession. I'm looking for a job in finance. And I walk in and I say, hi, I'm, I'm here for an interview. And the woman at the front desk looks at me, she goes, you? <laughs> I go, okay, this is going to be bad, but I have to go through with it. So I'm like, yes, me. So she makes a call. She goes, um, Claude is here. And again, I'm hearing all of the trepidation in her voice. So guy walks out and he's looking around and I'm like, hey, I'm the only one in the lobby. It's me. Yeah. And he proceeds to spend the entire interview explaining to me why I wouldn't want to be, I think some sort of quality analysis, something like that, whatever analyst position I was applying for, but I'd be great for the call center. The difference between those two jobs was the analyst job paid, I want to say $55,000, $60,000. The call center, you were making $11 an hour. So I have to ask, what was it about my face? Because before I even said a word, you started trying to talk me out of the job. So what was it about my face that said I wasn't a good fit for this job, but my name and resume said that I was? And then another example I have is I did land a job, which was, it was a very strange place. And one day I'm going to learn how to write screenplays and I'm going to write a show about this place. But my boss said to me one time, said to me, and it was about three other Black people there. He goes, oh yeah, if I see a name on a resume and it looks too ghetto, I just throw it in the garbage. So you you made a qualitative assessment about a person based on their name. You know nothing else about them. You didn't even bother to read the resume. That's the same thing as saying, oh, Suzanne's a Pisces. Nope, yeah. nope. got to get her out of here. Yeah. Like, what is that? How do you make it ahead in this world when, that, when that's what you're faced with? And that's the thing that really struck me when I listened to the, the episodes of the Labour Forward podcast is that there are... There are no laws or legislations now in place. So Jim Crow is gone, apartheid is gone. On paper, everybody has exactly the same access and exactly the same opportunities. So now you're in that meritocracy. You would have actually got the job had you been better at, had your, you know, your test scores been better, had you had a better degree or something like that, as opposed to saying, well, actually, no, even though there's no law on the books that says you cannot access these educational opportunities, or as you say, the, the US, the kind of red line in terms of where you can live and where you can't live. There are still issues that are, I suppose, underlying and are almost harder to yeah. deal with because they're not so overt. I don't know where that leaves us then, you know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of it's very hard. You can't, you can't bring anybody to court now and say, well, I was discriminated against on the grounds of, because. So you, you can, mm. but it, it's a very, it's very hard to, to win that case. You have yeah. to have what one lawyer said to me was a smoking gun. Yeah. You need to have overwhelming, undeniable proof. 
And that's, that's really hard to get. And what's really frustrating is, you know, in America, we say we've been free for 60 years, but we're dealing with 400 years of policies being trickled down. You don't, you may have legislated away oppression, but you can't legislate heart change. And all you, all you have to do is just take one walk through as a black person through a white neighborhood. And you'll see that that heart change hasn't exactly happened yet. And we had, so we had an event in 2017, I want to say, where a group of white men were marching through the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia, with tiki, tiki torches chanting, you will not replace us. Uh, We built this country, all of these different things. And when they, when they started to, because you know how the internet works now, all we need is your face and we'll find you. They started to dig into the backgrounds of these men. Who are they? They were, and it was, it was a lot of, a lot of young men a lot of middle-aged men. So it's men in the workforce, men who hold power, men who are vice presidents at banks, men who are lawyers. There were several police officers there, several pastors there, several teachers and educators. Uh, I think there was a professor or two. So you have these people who are expressing overtly racist ideas, who also hold positions of power. So while they may, while we may say there are no laws on the books, These people make decisions. They decide who gets hired. They decide who gets funding. They decide who gets the bank loan. They decide what kind of counseling a person in need receives. And you can't discount that. That is such a difficult space, I think, to be in, isn't it? Because, as you said, it's about changing hearts and minds. And I'm I'm so conscious of this as well, that on a regular basis, as I said, as as a white Western European woman, I regularly need to check my biases and my prejudices. I do need to check why you hold a certain position or why you think a certain person is going to be a certain way. So I think it, we do need to call ourselves into account on a regular basis. And I suppose for Ireland, became very multicultural very, very quickly. I mean, if I just look at the stats here, our last census was 2016. We were supposed to have had one in 2020, and that was put off as everything was in 2020. So in 2016, there were a total of 535,475 non-Irish nationals. That represents 200 different nations living in Ireland on that night. So that's a huge change in a really, really short space of time. Up until I think maybe the mid-90s to early 2000s, it was primarily white and in terms of faith again primarily Roman Catholic so you've gone from a monoculture to a multicultural in a really really short space of time and that's the bit that fascinates me about you know we don't have any laws on our books and yet again to kind of quote a few stats the Irish Network Against Racism in their 2020 reports of racism in Ireland there were 700 reports received in 2020 now 2020 was a year that we were all sitting at home, criminal offences, excluding incitement to hate, but sorry, excluding incitement to hate with constituted 159 reports. Discrimination accounted for 99 reports. There were 334 reports concerning hate speech, which was almost double that of 2019. I kind of think to myself, in a land that prides itself on this kind of cave meal of fault, a land of 100,000 welcomes, are we saying that only certain people are welcome? That, again, depending on the colour of your skin, it, it influences your opportunities. 
I mean, there's another headline here for International Women's Day, which again caught my eye, which was there's never been a black school principal in Ireland. Never? Wow. Do you, again, I'm curious, do you know what was responsible for the explosive growth in multiculturalism? A lot of it is jobs here. So you went, we went from being a country that exported people for a very long time and then we had this economic boom, sort of mid 90s, early 2000s. Initially, we had a lot of people say coming in from other parts of Europe, and then that would have expanded out. And I was at a talk there about two weeks ago, and Catherine Day, who headed up a group that would have looked at, we have a system here called direct provision, which is how people who come through the international protection process are housed and processed and she was saying that for the majority of people who come here looking for asylum this was not their first choice of destination Mm. most people are hoping to go to Germany or the UK and when they arrive in Ireland that's when they realize that they've arrived in Ireland so (laughs) there's a certain element of it's not it's not number one on a lot of people's lists of places to go but there's a lot of multinationals here as well. So you have a lot of American companies with their European headquarters here because especially now after Brexit, we are still part of the European Union. So that gives you access to all of that in terms of banking and finance and the transfer of information. We are a well-educated population and we're also English speaking. And what you've got then is because these are big multinationals and then we're dealing with Europe, you are looking for multilingual international staff. So it's a mixture of migrants and immigrants, and then also people then coming in through that asylum refugee process, looking for international protection. Again, when you look at the numbers of people coming in through the international protection, I think Nigeria forms the largest proportion of those people. But again, this is not, this doesn't tend to be their destination of choice. That's a very long answer to a very short question, CJ. <laughs> no, no, that's good. I, I'm, yeah, I was, I was curious. Uh, I never really thought of Dublin as being this sort of international city. Mm. Now, is it? I'm not that familiar with uh, the Irish landscape, but are other cities pretty populated uh, diversity-wise as well, or, or is it mostly Dublin? Dublin's your capital city. Galway is a smaller city. I mean, the entire population of the entire country is still only roughly, we up to about six million now, there or thereabouts. So it's still a really, really, really tiny country. And it's still a really, really small population. So there's a small city. So I think Dublin is around maybe a million and a, maybe a million and a half. And then Galway would be a smaller city. Off the top of my head, I can't think of the population. 18.6% of its residents are recorded as non-Irish. That's almost 20% of your population. Yeah. who are listed as non-Irish. You know, there's pockets of Dublin already where there's a street in Dublin called Parnell Street. You'll find Brazilian, African, Chinese supermarkets. There's African hairdressers. There's Vietnamese, Korean, Romanian and African congregations. There's evangelical services there. So there are pockets, and I suppose like anywhere else, even say the Irish in London, you know, there's pockets where 
people go and then the brother comes and then the sister comes and then the cousins come. People tend to congregate as they move into cities and as they move into places. But I think for, for the most part, because I think it's so small, and again, I'm saying this as a, as a white Western middle-aged woman, it's not quite as ghettoized, I don't think. Like there's, there's a socioeconomic aspect to this as well, so that you've got different socioeconomic groups living together and, and mixing. So, you know, what you'll find, say, in housing estates is a mixture. You will always gravitate towards the community that can support you first and foremost. We had talked as well before about that piece about keeping your own background as well. I mean, Irish policy, and actually integration is defined in, in Irish policy as the ability to participate to the extent that a person needs and wishes to in all of the major components of society without having to relinquish his or own cultural identity. It's trying to be both. It's trying to be African-Irish, Libyan-Irish, Syrian-Irish, picking what's good about Ireland. And it's not all good. And, you know, bringing your own language and your own culture. And I often think that there are no... There's not a history of, there are no Irish restaurants dotted around the corners of neighborhoods across the world, you know, like we have become enriched by opening our doors and having all of these wonderful cultures come in because you can now, any food you can think of, you can find it here now. So that's even, even something as simple as that. I think we're in, but that's like, yeah, that's, that's the beauty of the human experiment, right? It's, when we're not fighting with each other and yeah. we're actually taking the time to learn from each other and love each other and treat each other well, we realize there is so much that we hold in common. One, I, I love food. Food is, that's my, my love language. And I always say, you know, when it comes to food, everybody eats chicken. We just all cook it a little differently. And I am curious about that method of cooking in other places because it, you learn something about that culture and about those people. But when you operate from a xenophobic mindset, you're not able to take that in. You look at that and go, oh, you put this on your chicken? You have to go over there. And that's when we create that that othering. Uh, you had mentioned before about you have people of different socioeconomic levels living together, which I find to be really interesting because here in America, we have a very big class issue. But we also have a very big race issue. And unfortunately, race and class are inextricably linked in this country. Mm. But what's interesting is that within that, if you are a Black upper middle class person, you are, I think it's 87% more likely to live next to someone in poverty than a white upper middle class person. So what, what we learn from that data is white people in America get to segregate themselves even from each other by class, but Black people are just always lumped together. And so I'm curious from an Irish perspective, because I, I think you see tensions amongst haves and have-nots when you have them clumped together. Do you, do you get that over there as well? I mean, I, I look at, say, where I live. I live in a Dublin suburb, again, that's, that's very, very, very ethnically diverse. In the houses that I live in here, it's a mixture and then maybe two estates over, 
there may well be a differentiation between owner occupiers and renters, but that's an issue here, separately again anyway, like with, with housing that very few people now can, regardless of what job you've got, it's proving harder and harder and harder to become an owner occupier. But the hope would be that with the same educational opportunities, like so if if there's two babies born now in Hollis Street or in the Rotunda in Dublin in, in the city centre, if there's two wee girls born beside each other, that you know that they should have the same opportunities, that they should have the same, they should be allowed to flourish at the same rate, regardless of the colour of their skin. You would hope that. So it does tend to be quite mixed. I know, again, if, if you go into town of a Saturday or a Sunday, you go into the city centre, you will see groups of teenagers that are very mixed because they are coming up together through school together. So that tends to be where you see it, I think. And it goes back to that thing with, with, with Spike again. It's that, you know, it's about integration. It's about kids. Kids don't care. They genuinely do not care. A lot of it's learned, a lot of it is inherited. So at the moment here, like you walk Dublin city centre and we do have an issue with homelessness. We do have an issue maybe with people who are struggling with addictions who are homeless. They are all white. Mm. And you see here in New York, it's it's almost the exact opposite. It's very rare to see to see a white person experiencing homelessness here. Generally, yeah, generally speaking, just growing up, I didn't see it a lot. You see it a little more now, but it's really, it's really not that common. You know, I was just thinking about you talking about, you know, two girls being born in the same place and hopefully having, you know, equal opportunities to flourish. That's something that we really struggle with here because our schools are largely funded by property taxes. And so obviously the more wealthy an area is, the more money is being pumped into their schools. And we know that the poor areas, they're disproportionately Black. And the difference between the top 10% of schools and the bottom 10% of schools in terms of funding and money spent is billions of dollars. Wow. Billions. And I think about my education. I, I barely made it through the New York City public school system. I was just never a great student. But I also look back and remember that my classrooms were overcrowded. My teachers were certainly underpaid because I teachers are still underpaid today. Our textbooks were outdated. We were constantly trying to trying to play catch up. How does a child flourish in that environment that then gets them to the place where they can compete mm-hmm. for for the high paying job later on? So for the kids who do make it, you're almost you're the rose that grew from concrete. You weren't planted in the in the nice greenhouse. And so I hate when people, because you see this a lot over here, mm-hmm. is, you know, they did it, they made it, why couldn't you? Yeah. And it's like, look, look at what they had to go through to get yeah. there. Not everyone is going to be able to do that. Yeah. If anybody has the time and the energy, I recommend Michael Sandel. He writes about that myth of meritocracy, that whole concept of it's a level playing field. So it's you that's at fault if you're not able to thrive in this environment because again we all have exactly the same access to exactly the same opportunities there's no reason whatsoever why you can't be head of a fortune 500 company or something like that it's you're the problem 
Yeah. Yeah. So I start I started my career in finance. I'm no longer there. And one of the reasons I chose to leave is not only I just I wasn't good at it, if I'm honest. But the second reason is I took a look at what the landscape looked like for me. And I noticed that in my entry level positions, there were a lot of older black people around me. But the higher up you went, the whiter and more male it got. So and then, of course, on the way up, there's a few Black people here and there, but it's very rare. And I realized there's a very clear ceiling on me in this space. Do I want to spend the next 40 years doing something I'm not good at and I don't really enjoy to make it to maybe the bottom of the middle? And so I chose to leave. And that ended me into this wonderful, weird space that I'm in now. But I'm very grateful for it because this this beats that any day. Like I get to have this conversation with you. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing this if I was still in finance. <laughs> but it, it is about that thing as well of being allowed to make those decisions and to have the, I suppose, the bravery to kind of say, well, this isn't for me. And this, I think a lot of that goes back as well to this thing of being constantly feeling that you're an ambassador. Well, if I fail, then what does that mean for everybody else you know what do people look at when they see me so that you're allowed to make decisions for you as an individual as opposed to having to be as you said an ambassador for for whatever community that that you sort of identify with that there's a luxury there I suppose that that you were able Gosh. to do that when I was when I was in finance my first job it was right after uh, President Obama got elected and conservative white people were very upset and when you work in finance, you work with a lot of conservative white people. And I found myself who I, I was not very uh, politically savvy back then, but I found myself constantly having to be the voice for all black people in mm. all times and all spaces, because they would say things never, never overtly. It was always, it was always the dog whistle. Like, you know, people only voted for him so they can get free phones and, and get welfare. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think you actually know anybody who would qualify for that. And I don't know anyone who's gotten a free phone. So what are you talking about? And, you know, I, I can look back now, gosh, 13, 14 years later and realize that that was the product of a certain media conglomerate spewing a certain narrative. And I don't know how politics are over there, but we are so dichotomized in this country. You are either one way or the other. There's no room for nuance. And the major media organizations, whatever side you're on, they just pump you all the way up. And those were those were the first signs of it. And it's just, it's out of control now. That, that might be another very lengthy conversation about, <laughs> about politics here. But the, I think the hope is that we, we don't have a far right presence. It's tiny. It is tiny. Yeah, in terms of the, the media, I think, but that's it's about clicks, it's about our attention span yeah. is gone. But I think there's a hope here that we are already, I think, seeing the benefits. I mean, you can see like we have traditional Irish sports here, Gaelic football and hurling, and we have football or soccer, and you can see already the influence of of young players coming through in our athletics in our in our sports especially in in the creative arts I mean again in in writing there was a, another podcast that we had done by just a famous Irish writer called Roddy Doyle 
and he had talked about the fact that Irish people speak English a certain way based on the construction of sentences in the Irish language. And he said, what's really fascinating now is you've got people coming in, say with Polish as a first language, learning English in Ireland, which is different to English in England or English in America. And the way that the, the way that we use words to go back to the way that we tell stories then is changing. And I know we had said this thing, you know, that with the Irish and say, I do be going. And you 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 instantly yeah, like, recognize that. I was like, yeah, we say that too. <laughs> like, yeah, like African American vernacular English is is very much like that. You know, mm. you say things like I do be going. And we, oh gosh, black people, we we say we speak two languages out of the womb. We're bilingual. Because you have to be able, like we speak how we speak with each other and we'll say things like, yo, I do be going to the store on Mondays. But when we're in white spaces, we're very quickly booted out if we don't conform to what uh, is considered standard American English. The problem with the English language is it's spoken by so many people all over the world that there's actually no standard English. And so whenever you get someone trying to bear down a standard on you, it's usually some form of of imperialization or some form of trying to exert dominance and display display control because there's no actual standard there is no proper way to speak this language because it's it's born out of what was it germanic tribal languages and uh i forget what the other major influence was but then it spread all around the world it's a way of silencing certain voices if they don't conform. So as you said, for people to take their place and to be heard that they have to conform to certain speech acts or language acts that only you can only be heard properly if you speak a certain way. It's, a, it's, it's really interesting because I think, and I, I'm curious if uh, Black people in Ireland would say they experienced this. But it's not just the words we use as Black people in America that are policed, but it's also our tone, our actions, our mannerisms. I, like, I've sat in rooms where, you know, there's a heated discussion going on, and I would say something, and then a white guy would say the same thing in the same way. Now, I'm a passionate guy, so if, I, if I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm going. I'm not angry. To you, I may sound angry. Mm-hmm. But I've never heard a black person say, oh, yeah, you sound angry right now. It's like, oh, no, you, you're hype right now is what we would say. Um, but I would, I would get pulled aside. I'm like, hey, you sounded really angry there. Are you OK? I'm like, well, did you say that to him? Because he said it the exact same way I did. And what sounded to me like a bit more force. But you're not asking him if he was angry. And so we, it's really frustrating that in order for us to be heard and taken seriously, we really have to truncate ourselves in the hopes that it would give us a favorable ear, which, as we've learned throughout history, it doesn't matter. That piece about being an ambassador and having to be better than, to be equal, having to be, as you said, acquiesce, having to be polite in spaces, having to be, having to ask permission to be in certain spaces and permission to speak in a certain way. Otherwise, you end up with that stereotype of the angry black man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question for you, just shifting gears a little bit. Um, so you you were telling me about there used to be signs in England that would say, no Irish, no Blacks, 
no dog. I'm I'm from America, as we know. And in my mind, I see England, I see Ireland, and I'm like, you're 10 feet away from each other or 10, 10 meters away from each other. Yeah. You're the same people. You just have a bit of a different accent. What, like, what's, how does that work? How does someone identify outside of your, outside of a, your voice mm-hmm. that you're Irish and you can't, you can't come in here? And what's the history of that, of that beef? It goes back to that whole thing, to the colonization and that imperialistic mindset. So Ireland was colonized by UK. We can make anybody other. I think it's really, yeah. Yeah. It's really the, the, the moral of that story. I mean, if that is the key is that I think you can make anybody other. Yeah. We seem to specialize in that as people. There was a piece that I read this morning, which I thought really, we, we might end with this, which is that the stranger does not come accidentally. He or she brings a particular gift and illumination. Mm. So it's only by talking and sharing and eating and telling stories that we can still be other, but there's an equality in that, I suppose, which is what I would hope for. Yeah, there's a, we find that even though we are different, we complement each other and that there can be unity in the midst of diversity. There should never be, we should never be in a place where we ask someone to drop their entire identity to be a part of us. And unfortunately, in so many parts of the world, that's what we're seeing. Uh, I think my audience would, would just love to hear about the work that you do and, and your focus with this podcast and, and outside of it. Social Justice Ireland is an independent think tank that looks to try and change policy Obviously, policy impacts on every aspect of our lives, absolutely everything. And what we're trying to do is influence that policy by saying money can be spent in a certain way. If we look at education, what are we doing in education? Can it be done differently? Let's look at the numbers. Let's look at the statistics. And using your research, looking at the numbers, and a lot of it is, where are we? Where do we want to be and how do we get between those two? And how much is it going to cost? Because <laughs> <laughs> everything will demand a resource in some shape or form. But it's about coming up with, I suppose, alternative ideas, looking, I'd say at the moment we have a housing crisis here. It's about looking to see, okay, well, what have we been doing? How did that end? How, what, what bits work? What bits didn't work? What can be changed? What do they do in Europe? What do they do in America? What can we learn? And just using all of those tools then to try and influence policy. And again, just these conversations then tend to just be about telling stories to try and get people to maybe broaden their views, have conversations about things that they might not be aware of or haven't heard before. And I think the thing with Social Justice Ireland is that most organisations are either focused on a particular group or a particular issue. And for us, for better or for worse, <laughs> when you look at the workload, it's a little bit of everything because everything's joined up. So the population as a whole is affected by education, transport, health, rural sustainability, circular economy, housing. We try and look at all of that in the round. So that's that's really the job that we're trying to do here. That is great and much needed work. And we could use some help over here. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've got our own think tanks and people working, but 
the more the merrier. So what do you think is from from your perspective the hope for Ireland over the next 25 years as you grow into a more multicultural nation? I do hope that there is no ghettoization. I do hope that there is no segregation. I genuinely do hope that as I see all these little kids coming in and out of school gates, that they look after each other, that their friendships grow and flourish. These are our next round of politicians. These are our next round of surgeons. These are our next round of barristers. And that these children are allowed to flourish and to become as best as they can be, regardless of whatever hyphens you want to put on either before the Irish or after the Irish that they have the same opportunities. And I do genuinely believe that we are a much, much, much stronger, more interesting. Again, there's, there's more stories to tell. I think the more of us there are and the more different we are, I think the better stories we get to tell. Ideally, that's what I would love to see is that nobody gets to tell you who gets to be Irish, that you decide. You've made your life here you've brought your family here, you walk here, you live here, that you decide that nobody else will say to you, well, you don't get to be Irish because. So that, that would be my hope. Yeah. yeah, that's good. That's so good. Thank you so much for, for doing this. It was great talking to it you. It was good. Thank you so much. Have a good day. All right. Take you care. too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, Anything you'd like us to discuss, feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.